0: You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast of intimate profiles for active women aiming to keep improving. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. Every other week, I introduce female athletes and women in sports who share stories about who they are and all the terrific work they're doing. Hello and welcome to another episode, and this one will knock your socks off because I'm talking to Stacey Sims, co-author of the book I talk about all the time, Roar. She has a menopause-specific book coming out very soon. You can pre-order that now and get some bonuses from Feisty Media when you do. There's a link in the show notes to make that happen. In our conversation today, Stacey and I do focus on menopause and some of the specifics Stacey recommends for training and nutrition. I'm so thrilled to have Stacy on the show, so let me introduce her. Stacey Sims is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. Between 2007 and 2012, she served as an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist at Stanford University. Then in 2012, she co-founded Osmo Nutrition, a sports nutrition company with male and female specific hydration and recovery products. And in 2016, with co-author Celine Yeager, she wrote the groundbreaking book, Roar and their new book, Next Level Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great, and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond, is due out in the next few weeks. She is well recognized as a leading expert in sex differences in training, nutrition, and health. She is often named a visionary in the sports industry, including one of the top four visionaries in the outdoor sports industry in 2017 by Outside Magazine, one of the top four individuals changing the landscape in triathlon nutrition in 2017 by Triathlon Magazine. Stacy has inspired so many women in sports, including me. So I'm so thrilled to have her here on the podcast. Well, hello and welcome, Stacey. It's, I don't know. It's just so super exciting to have you on the show. Thanks for making time to be here.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited for our chat.
0: Sure. Well, you know, I'm sure I could talk to you all day, but, you know, so our conversation doesn't become completely unwieldy. I'd like to concentrate on your work around perimenopause and menopause. And that's in part because I'm in that zone, but also you and Celine Yeager, your Roar co-author, have a new book coming out. Yeah, yep, we do. What can you tell us about it? So
1: when we published Roar, Uh, we had a lot of women who are asking about the menopause chapter because it's a a really underserved population because when you're looking at like guidelines or looking at research study that's on menopausal perimenopausal women it's all in a clinical scope of people who are not well or start to develop some kind of cardiovascular disease or metabolic syndrome but there's nothing out there for women who are already fit and active And then we started getting just a plethora of questions about it. And we're both in our late forties and our friends are, you know, approaching that same time point in life. And when you start digging into the research, there's bits and pieces here. So we are like, you know what, we need to pull all of this together and expand the menopause chapter so that we can service so many women who are already fit and active and looking to still maximize their potential.
0: Is most of your research now and your work around this age of women, the older women?
1: No, I still, well, how do I, I have different pockets that still is across the lifespan. So there's um, stuff we're doing specifically with resistance training in peri and postmenopausal women. But we also have a parallel study that's looking in resistance trained premenopausal women. So everything is across the lifespan because I don't want to ignore like the youth. I don't want to ignore uh, the differences between OC and definitely don't want to ignore the peri and postmenopausal women. So every time there's a PhD student that comes in or some kind of research project that comes up, always looking, how do we
0: parallel um, the three pockets of the age groups together? So in research for the book, was there anything that surprised you and Celine?
1: Um, uh, I don't, I don't know if it surprised me, but Celine wrote an intro and I read it. Um, we have different passes when you get the book and I hadn't really read her intro until we got the first pass of the book. So it's like a pre-Galley copy. And she wrote saying that the reason, one of the reasons why this book itself had been a little bit delayed aside from COVID is she didn't really believe that there was a big problem until she hit her late 40s and all of a sudden all this stuff started happening and she didn't know what to do. And so she's like, so I emailed Stacy and Stacy in her nonchalant way just said, try these adaptogens, you know stop doing long, slow distance, start doing resistance training. And she said, and then I did it and it worked. And then I knew that we had a topic for our next book. Hmm. So it was more like, Because my time at Stanford, I was working with Marsha Stefanik, who was the PI for the Women's Health Initiative. So a lot of my work there was in that whole space of of looking at what are we doing for athletic premenopausal women? How can we take some of those concepts and apply to the peri and postmenopausal woman that may or may not be active or is already active. So my mindset was already in that space. So as the research had been developing and the research that we were doing there, it all just kind of fell into place. So when people started asking me questions, I was already in that mindset. But I don't think that Celine was or most women who hit their mid-40s actually understand what's going on. So that's another call for this book.
0: Well, it's interesting that you said that because I'm really curious about sort of this mind flip that needs to happen to accept the new research that you're doing and accumulating in terms of training for female athletes, as you said, for all ages, but for menopause, we'll keep it to that for the moment. Like, how do you, I guess, how do you get people to sort of change how they have perceived older women and perceive training for women I mean, it seems like a big ask.
1: It is, it's a huge ask. And one of my close friends and colleagues here is a sociologist. So we often talk about this as well. The sociocultural constructs of of what it means to be a woman. And I mean, you look at popular media and when they have older, older couples, the guy can be a bit slovenly, you know, a little bit overweight, wears like shirts untucked, but the woman has to be like perfect regardless of age, right? right you know right. what I mean, right? Sure. I mean, you can look at, at the friend's reunion. It's, a, you know, a, a pure depiction of what, what's going on. So to break through that, trying to p- get people to understand that they're in different cultures outside of Western culture, menopause is looked upon as a favorable thing where all of a sudden it's a freedom and we've become the elders. We're free of having the the fear of of accidental pregnancy Um, it's a new chapter in life and just explaining the different cultures and how we can empower ourselves in that mindset and it is a lot of education that goes with it but the more that we talk about it and it's the same as when we are trying to normalize women's menstrual cycles and saying the word period it's taken years to do that so now my next big push is to normalize menopause and to normalize the word menopause and get people to understand it. And we're getting some groundswell, especially with Celine's Hit Play, Not Pause podcast, where there's a larger and larger community of active women who are talking about it and approaching it to their physicians, educating their physicians, or finding other people who are in that medical space who understand where they're coming from. So it's more of that grassroots groundswell, and I'm really excited to see where that goes, but it is gonna be a huge amount of education still to get the general mindset switched around that menopause does not mean the end of, of life as you know it.
0: You know, I mean, this is such a simple, stupid example, but my belief of what hot flashes were and what they actually are are so completely different. So it's not just, you know, making sure that we understand that women who are older can actually continue to do stuff, but there's also an education about what it actually is.
1: Yeah, because people don't know what perimenopause is, right? They don't understand, and when we hear menopause, everyone thinks that that whole transition space of peri and postmenopause is menopause. And menopause is really just, we're saying, you know, it's it's the birthday of the rest of your life because it's the one day on the calendar that marks 12 months of no periods. So the time period before that, a lot of women are like, I don't understand what's going on because they think it's it's life stress. They've been told, oh, you're, you're working really hard. You're under a lot of stress. That's why you're having problems sleeping. That's why your body composition is changing. That's why you're waking up with night sweats. It's all stress induced. No one tells you that, no, wait, actually it's this hormone flux and it's causing you to have all these issues. And there's so many different signs and symptoms. It's not just hot flashes. And then people are like, well, what is a hot flash? And you're like, it's that sensation of, of massive heat into a massive sweat. And people are like, well, oh, okay, well, how often does it happen? And there is no norm about it either. So it's, it's interesting when you start talking to women in their 40s and they're like, I don't understand, you know, I, I'm doing all my training and, and I'm not having any kind of body composition shift. I'm eating clean. I'm, I'm still not recovering. I'm still putting body weight on what's going on. And when you start digging in and saying, well, that's a symptom of perimenopause. Oh, what's perimenopause? That's a time period about four or five years before your periods stop, where you start having all these body composition changes, no matter what kind of training you're doing. So we have to really switch it up. And then people start to understand that the hot flashes and vasomotor symptoms are just the typical symptoms and syndromes that you see with perimenopause. But there's a whole bunch of other things that can indicate that Yep, your hormones are changing, getting ready to flatline.
0: I'd like to go back a little bit to, you had said that in other cultures, menopause is not the same thing and it means different things than it does here. And, you know, like one of the questions I've had learning more about training around your cycles and also more about training around menopause and paramenopause is, you know, how do we not get depressed about the menopausal changes that are gonna impact our training? And also for younger women, How do we, you know, accept that you train differently in the first half of your period and the second half of your period? And the reason I ask is because I sort of get worried that the way that men train is gonna be set up as a gold standard and everything else is like some sort of compromise. You know, and if we have to train differently during our luteal phase, it's, you know, maybe less than or not good enough or possibly even a cop-out. So how do you talk about all that?
1: Yeah, um, I unpack it a bit and and say, you know, coaching hasn't really changed in the past 20 or 30 years. But if you look at science, science changes all the time. We also know that that human bodies are not algorithms. So if we train in a static way, which is what most of the coaching programs and the, you know, download off the Internet for your 10 week to half marathon program, you're not actually going to get changes or reach your potential. So the way that I talk about it from like a menstrual cycle into perimenopause is that we have this unique ergogenic aid that's inherent to women. It's called our sex hormones. So if we work with our hormones, then we're actually leveraging something men don't have, where we can leverage different points of time across the month with our menstrual cycle, where we have this natural aid to really accelerate our ability to absorb hard training, recover from it and get fitter. But we also have time points where we should really look to deload, to absorb that hard training so that the next time we're more recovered so we can hit even higher workloads. So trying to explain the polarized training and people get it, they're like, ah, well, if we lay it over what a a typical coaching program looks like or periodization program looks like, there is, a scientific rationale called undulation or undulized periodization. And that's what we're doing with the menstrual cycle. And I also really try to get people to understand that when we talk about training, it's different from performance, because there's still a lot of chatter out there about there's no difference between menstrual cycle phases. We see these systematic reviews that come out. We see people on Twitter yelling about it. And yes, there is actually no difference in performance from any phase of the menstrual cycle because performance is just that acute one point in time. And we know psychologically you can supersede physiological. But when we talk about training and being able to leverage what these hormones allow us to do in a better sense than what men can, and dictate when we should kind of lay off and absorb that hard training, and we can polarize training to get fitter, then that does improve our performance. When we talk about perimenopause, and we have these fluctuations, trying to get women to understand that you can't keep doing in your 40s what you're doing in your 20s. And we say that across the board, even in men, right? Aging is a is an interesting um, mechanism that kind of slows us down, but we don't have to look at it as a stopping mechanism. We have to look at how we can work with our bodies to keep enough stress for adaptation, but also backing off the stress to absorb things. And... We know that there are inherent sex differences that are aside from hormonal fluctuations. So we know there are sex differences in appetite. There are sex differences in muscle mitochondrial proteins. And we can leverage that as well when we start to lose those hormones. So when we talk about the the static aspect of coaching and how that hasn't changed and you lay it out and go, look, it's really archaic. But if we look at polarizing and changing up as our bodies change, then we can leverage each decade for a performance potential. He explained to coaches and coaches get it as well. They're like, ah, I get it. Yep. Okay you know, because what I'm doing for a 20 year old guy isn't necessarily the same as what I do for a 30 year old guy. It's like, well, that's the same concept. What you do for women who are in their 20s to 30s is gonna be different from what you do for women who are in their 40s and 50s. And we have to really look at what those differences are.
0: Cool, that's cool. You mentioned stress, and I wanted to ask about stress because you do write a lot about stress and countering stress that we put on our bodies. So could you explain exactly what you mean by the word stress and what it does to the body?
1: So when I talk about stress and training stress, it's different from life stress. Like when we think about life stress, we think about poor sleep, we think about elevated heart rate, high cortisol, all of those things that contribute to what most of Western society think of stress syndrome. When I talk about stress and exercise stress, when we start exercising, there are so many different changes that happen because your body is under a mechanical stress. So that means that the muscles are working harder, they're tearing down, they need nutrition to keep going to overcome the workload that you're putting it on. Our heart rates go up, our breathing rates go up. All of these are stimulated by different actions that create this acute phase that allows our body to overcome that workload that we're putting on it. And that is exercise stress. So we put our bodies under the stress when we are exercising and it's, it can become a positive stress. And what I mean by that is when your heart rate goes up and you have an acceleration of epinephrine, um, and you're breaking down fuel to fuel the muscles, these are all signals to the body that, Hey, wait, we are going to need some nutrition to overcome this. And we're going to have to look at how are we going to repair things. And we want that stress because that's how we get fitter. But a lot of people misinterpret that and go, okay, I am exercising, enduring exercises when I'm getting fitter. So then they don't pay attention to the time points around it. So they're not fueling appropriately. They're not stretching. They're not doing mobility work. They're not doing things to allow their body to really overcome that acute period of workload to enhance and adapt. So this is a lot of the exercise stress that I talk about and putting your body under acute stress when we are exercising and what we do to counter it to improve our fitness.
0: So yeah, let's get into what we do to counter it. So one of your big things is nutrition and protein. Mm.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it becomes more important for women to pay attention to it again, because of sex differences from a chromosomal standpoint of of the way that our bodies actually fuel during exercise. So women have a higher reliance on free fatty acids, not only from estrogen, but also because our muscles and the mitochondria within the muscle have more proteins to use and, and, and break down fatty acids as compared to men women also have differences in the way they can store and use carbohydrate and that is partly you know menstrual cycle driven or OC driven so we have to be very cognizant of that as well so when we talk about fueling there are differences where women don't do well in a fasted state and this is driven primarily from the hypothalamus so we have areas in the brain that perceive nutrition status and then when we have two areas but in men we have one And the reason that women have two is because we have menstrual cycles and we have hormone production. And when our calorie intake and our carbohydrate intake drops too much, so if we're doing fasted training or we're not recovering well after training, then it's a signal to these areas in the hypothalamus that we need to, to start conserving energy. So this is where we start seeing menstrual cycle dysfunction where we start seeing um, bone degeneration, thyroid turning down after four days of doing you know, fasted training. But in men, they can get away with it because they only have one area in the hypothalamus. So their threshold is much lower than what um, women's is. So when women are doing fasted training, again, you know, it signals to the hypothalamus that, hey, wait a second, we don't have enough nutrition, so we can't really supply the energy we need for this workload. And then women stay in this breakdown or a catabolic response after exercise. And if you're not feeding the body, then it's kind of a moot point to have done that exercise because your body can't recover, it can't repair. And protein's really important, especially as we age, because we need more circulating amino acids for muscle protein synthesis and for neurotransmitters because we have a a higher clearance rate of amino acids. And this is somewhat driven by progesterone because progesterone is very catabolic. So when progesterone goes up, we break down more stuff, not only um, lean mass, but also divert glucose into the endometrial lining. Um, We use more free fatty acids and divert that to other processes as well. And when you add protein in it, it helps mitigate some of this. As we get older, we have more anabolic resistance. And this is primarily because when we look at steps for muscle protein synthesis, one of the driving factors is insulin growth factor one, which is driven by estrogen. So when we start having low levels of estrogen, we lose one of those pathways for muscle protein synthesis. So then we have to rely on mechanical stress and amino acids. So it becomes super important to get those amino acids in, that protein in, and around training.
0: Can I go back? And so your body, if you're under fueling, our bodies are interpreting that as stress. Is that correct? And so I yeah. can't manage it.
1: Correct, correct. Okay. And we hear about it in popular media and more and more as low energy availability leading into relative energy deficiency in sport. And it can start happening within four days. So if you have four days of poor fueling, then your thyroid takes a hit and you start exhibiting symptoms of low energy availability.
0: And how does the percentage of protein that you recommend for paramenopausal and menopausal women differ from what's recommended for women in their 20s
1: and 30s? It's not so much percentage, but more timing and grams per kilogram. So if we're looking at active pre-menopausal women, we say between 1.8 and 2.0 grams per kilogram of body weight a day. And you want to have that pretty much divided in even doses across the meals with a good 30 gram dose post-exercise. As we start getting into perimenopause and menopause, we tend to really hammer in, you want around that 2 to 2.3 grams per kilogram of body weight a day with a 40 gram dose post-exercise and 35 to 40 grams at each meal. Um, We want even distribution to keep that amino acid pool elevated, not just for muscle protein synthesis, because most people think, hey, we need protein for that, but we need that amino acid pool elevated for lots of other processes in the body. And because estrogen used to or in that would be in perimenopause and postmenopausal women. But estrogen is a driver for a lot of processes that use protein. So when we start to lose estrogen, we need more protein to kind of take the place of what estrogen
0: used to do. So can we go back to this recovery post-exercise, post-training protein that's needed for menopausal, perimenopausal women? You said roughly 40 grams. You know to to me that sounds like a lot and Mm -hmm. it's super hard it takes me some like real mental work just not to think oh that's a lot of calories you know like am i gonna have to give up cookies or whatever else that i want to get in that protein
1: yeah and i'm not a big calorie like person where i i really don't like the mantra of calories in calories out because it doesn't really represent what what the body needs yes we need a certain amount of calories and yes there is the whole energy in energy out concept but the timing is super important and if you really like cookies then you can have cookies with your protein post-exercise and that is way more effective for refueling and moderating body composition than having protein and then having your cookies later in the day as we're looking at insulin sensitivity we're looking at how your body takes in nutrients how your body uses nutrients and the window after exercise is a fantastic window because your body's really in in dire straits and needs that that nutrition so if you're getting the protein in and then you're like yeah because I've gotten the protein in and I've altered insulin sensitivity, so if I have more carbohydrate, I don't have as much of a blood sugar rush, and the body can actually use that carbohydrate and pull it in. And that's really important when we're in this peri and postmenopausal state in our life, because we have a little bit of insulin resistance. So again, it's the timing. And also post-exercise, when you're in that breakdown state, if you stay in that breakdown state and you're not getting that protein in, then it's the same as if you've bookended your calories on either end of the day and you haven't fueled well for training, which contributes to that low energy state and negative implications on body composition. Do you eat three meals a day? Um, I think I eat more than that. (laughs) I'm
0: like, hmm, Okay, So, so yeah, like what does your daily intake look like? I mean, do you have meals and then snacks or is it sort of like spread out?
1: Uh, I have meals with my family, but my appetite goes up and down depending on the training that I do. So
0: sure.
1: I know that like first thing in the morning, I always try to get up and do something. So I have a, a protein fortified coffee to get me out the door. So it's a little bit of nutrition. And then I come home and I have breakfast with my family. And then I'm always starving about 11 o'clock. So then I'll have some fruit and nuts or some other kind of protein oriented thing because I'm always reaching for something that has protein and then something else with it. Um, What did I have yesterday afternoon? I had a frozen banana with macadamia nuts and tahini on it. And then I'll have lunch with my husband because he works from home too. That's about one o'clock. And then when my kid gets home from school, after school snack, and I'm always hungry then. And then I'm always hungry about five o'clock before dinner. And
0: so I'll have something else then and then I'll have dinner. I feel like I'm always eating. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, eating with your family because that's one thing that I always think is like, you know, athletes can become completely nutty and start separating themselves from real life.
1: Yeah. Now I grew up in a household that is always like, we have family dinners and then on the weekends when everyone was home, it was always, you know, lunch and dinner together. So there was always set times. And I find that really valuable, especially being able to talk to your, your family and, and see what's going on and set up the day and see what kind of problems there might be or good things. And we have conversations about what's the best thing that happened in the day. And I just trying to encourage conversation from my daughter. So it's, it's more of a cultural thing that I want to
0: keep going rather than, you know, it's a it's, yeah. Sure. And another thing that struck me this time reading Roar was the protein before bed. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? And also in relation to not eating too soon before bed and sort of how that fits in. And I will admit that, you know, like the idea of eating before bed kind of grossed me out. And I talked to some friends and it was the same thought, but I've had 15 almonds the last couple of nights and it seems okay.
1: Oh, okay. Um- <laughs> Yeah. So one of the reasons that we say protein before bed, especially casein protein, is that a lot of women are low in in calories, especially if they're doing lots of endurance or heavy training. And um, that's one way of boosting calorie intake in a good way in the fact that if you have more amino acids circulating at night, then you're body has the nutrition it needs to do all its reparation work because most of your physical reparation happens while you're sleeping. And that's part of your REM and your deep wave sleep, right? We have physical and um, mental reparation at night. And if we don't have a lot of circulating amino acids, then we can compromise some of that. And casein is a very slow release protein. So you end up having a titration of amino acids for a longer period of time. When we talk about sleep and sleep architecture we know that you don't really want to eat too much two hours before bed because then your body's still digesting but we have found that um, slow release like casein doesn't interfere with sleep architecture so it's another reason for having casein before bed if you're not into supplements then having a little bit of yogurt before bed, you know, within a half an hour, that boosts because it has whey and protein. Almonds are all right, except they're a little bit high in fat. So you just want to watch your sleep architecture there. But it's just again having a a little bit of a top up if you're in lots of heavy training to really maximize reparation that happens at night. And that casein
0: protein is a pill or it's a powder?
1: It's a powder. It's part you we hear about whey protein all the time, but the complement to whey is casein. It's a dairy protein.
0: Got it. And then another question I want to go through is sort of electrolytes and particularly magnesium, because last year I started to have trouble with low magnesium levels. And so I'm curious what the mechanism is of depleting yourself of electrolytes. And how does that process change as you age?
1: yeah so there's a lot of talk about electrolyte depletion in the endurance world but when we look at the general nutrition and the way that crops are grown especially in the u.s the soils are relatively depleted so plants and foods that used to be high in magnesium and selenium are actually low and when we're trying to eat a balanced diet and we're like oh i'll have more pumpkin seeds because they're high in magnesium we might actually be missing the mark And so as you're eating more westernized, especially in the States, the food there, it's not as nutrient dense as it should be. So we start to run into these issues. Magnesium is really important because for every muscle contraction, you're using calcium and magnesium. So if we don't have adequate magnesium stores, then we start to get really undue fatigue because we can't really get fast contractions. We tend to get a lot of cramping, spasms, a lot of cramping at night in particular. And magnesium is important for building tissue. This is another reason why pregnant women end up with really bad cramps in the middle of the night when they're halfway through their pregnancy because the body's using a lot of magnesium to build tissue. And when we look at just some of the aspects of vitamin D, magnesium, iron, all of these really trace elements that our body needs, I really default to the way that... We've been kind of taught or or how our food supply has, has kind of pushed us to becoming very nutrient poor and having an eye to that, making sure that we're kind of choosing more organic when we can or knowing where our food comes from and also supplementing. It's easy for me to say that here living in New Zealand because there isn't as big of a a depletion, I guess, it's not the same kind of food supply as we have in the States. But the more that you age and the more your body is under just normal stress and inflammation, the more our body needs zinc and magnesium. And unfortunately, our food supply is low in it. And it's just a, a contributing factor to why we're seeing so many low levels of magnesium and zinc and vitamin D, especially
0: in perimenopausal women. That's so interesting. So the magnesium is depleted by exercise as well as you just need more when you age. Yeah. And by sweating. Yep. Huh. Well,
1: sweating, sweating is more uh, potassium and sodium, but we okay. can usually replace that by salting our food. And because potassium levels aren't uh, as high a requirement as magnesium, then we can replace that through lots of colorful fruit and veg and, you know, bananas and that kind of stuff. But magnesium tends to be a big one that we just don't end up replacing. And same with selenium and
0: copper. That's fascinating. (laughs) Well, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. So another thing that surprised me is that you are super keen on proper nutrition during exercise and even more keen on proper hydration can you talk a little bit about how those work and why the hydration is so much more important than the the fueling, the eating?
1: Yeah. I ended up doing my PhD on hydration and looking at sex differences in hydration and thermoregulation by taking an idea that NASA had to rapidly rehydrate their astronauts when they came down from space because there's no gravitational pull, so they lose a lot of the water that's in their blood. And if they didn't have a way of expanding the blood as soon as they hit the ground, then they wouldn't be able to stand up. So, taking that concept and putting it into thermoregulation and exercise in the heat, and really understanding the mechanisms of hydration, it's really interesting to sit there and then see what happens in the sport nutrition world. Because if we look at the history of sports drinks, the original research that was done on hydration came after the production of Gatorade. Because, oh. you know, we we know the history of it. Like in the early 1960s, there was a football coach in Florida who um, was talking about his players being super dehydrated. And his roommate was a renal physiologist doing his postdoc. And it's like, you know what? You need to have a little bit of sodium. You need a little bit of glucose. Because those are the two things that actually let you pull fluid in. So then the football coach is like, sweet, we'll have a little bit of sugar and salt, and we'll put a little bit of lemon juice in for flavor. And it changed those football players' lives pretty much because now they were able to stay on top of hydration. They weren't having kidney stones. And so that was like the first step of Gatorade. And that's why it's called Gatorade because it was a Florida Gators. And if you look at the early research on that, there's like, yeah, okay, well, around a one and a half to 3% solution. So relatively low carbohydrate intake with two different types of sugars and some salt is what really works with your intestines to absorb fluid. But when it got bought by big companies, they put in an artificial uh, sugar to make it more palatable to the general population because that was the thing, you know, make everything sweet, 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 because that was the palate for the U.S. But then that that um, artificial sugar got pulled by the FDA and there wasn't anything to replace it. So they doubled the amount of sugar in it to keep that palatization. And then they started doing research on it saying, oh, well, when you're exercising, you need a lot of carbohydrate. Otherwise you'll hit the wall. So drink this. And that's the evolution of sports drinks. But when wow. you look at the actual physiology behind it there's too much carbohydrate and it's just addressing the fact that oh you might need some exogenous or external carbohydrate to keep you going but it does not address hydration and you can come back from low blood sugar relatively quickly just by eating but when you get behind in dehydration it takes hours to come back from that so for talking about what you're using during exercise you want to work with your intestines and work with physiology because when you're under exercise stress you have a huge amount of blood flow that goes away from the gut to the muscles so you're already compromised you already have a hot and a very low oxygen environment so then when you put something like a typical sports drink in It creates an increased pressure and the answer to that increased pressure is to pull water from other spaces and pull it into the intestines to try to dilute it. So you're effectively dehydrating yourself and then creating this gut slosh and incredible discomfort within the digestive tract before your body can do something with it. But if we look and say, well, from a physiological standpoint, we need just a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt with water, and that's how we can actually increase fluid absorption, then we don't have that compromise of water coming into the intestines.
0: Do you feel that people are adopting your recommendations and understanding what you're talking about? I mean, it seems to me, for example, in the last couple of years, there's been so much more discussion about REDS Mm -hmm. and... I just, I'm just curious what your impression is in terms of how we are doing as a general population in terms of fueling better as athletes.
1: Marketing is way stronger than science, unfortunately. I mean, <laughs> if I had all the gazillion dollars that PepsiCo had, then we'd probably be seeing stuff on race courses that actually helped athletes instead of just being dollars for the races there's more education going through the coaches i just got jason coop's new ultra running book and he has a really good outline of how to fuel for ultra running and it's all within the you know food in the pocket hydration in the bottle and he's just one of the coaches that i've known for years and he's pushed it out and there's there's a good uptake in the younger coaching generation to say hey we have to really pay attention to nutrition here in the general pop, it's not so much there because, again, like I said, marketing is stronger than science. And say, just a general person is wanting to train for Chicago Marathon and they get their information pack and it says Gatorade's going to be on course. You should probably train with Gatorade. And they're like, oh, okay, it's a sports drink. I see all the sports people using it. It must be a good thing. And that's not appropriate. So that's why I get frustrated with the perception that something on a race course is good for me to use as an athlete, but it's not, it's about sponsorship dollars. And that's one thing that needs to change.
0: Hmm. How do you recommend, I mean, you sort of talked about the athlete trying the Chicago marathon, but how do you recommend that older athletes get started with some of your suggestions and, you know, like how to keep track of the changes they're making and what impact those changes have?
1: Yeah, I think the first First two things I always recommend to people is to track their sleep. So get a good sleep tracker to see what their sleep architecture is doing, because that's a way that we can really see how our bodies are coping with stress. If we have really good slow wave sleep uh, and we have good amount of REM sleep, then we know that we are consolidating our memories and getting that physical reparation. Now, the next thing I'll recommend from a training standpoint is to drop the volume and increase the intensity, primarily by doing some resistance training first, um, small steps there. So like the big rocks for me are dropping volume and getting, getting under the bar. And I say that as a longtime endurance athlete, like I've been an endurance athlete since I was Thirteen. So understanding that resistance training should take precedence, even as an endurance athlete, to maintain muscle integrity, to improve body composition, to maintain power, increase power, reduce overall stress. And you can still really see significant improvements for endurance as well, because if you're strong, then you can, can maintain that endurance side of things as well. So when we get those two things going, then we start looking at the individual's goals of what kind of, of training do they want to do? Are they training for a marathon? Are they training for CrossFit? Are they training for a triathlon? And then we start really looking at how are we going to build that with the idea that you want to maintain intensity and resistance training. And then every about 10 days, you're putting in time on the feet for your event that you're, you're training up for. Which is a mind switch, right? Because I I was just going to say, exactly. Because so many people are conditioned to volume, volume, volume. More miles, more miles, more miles. I need to do my long run every weekend. And that comes from the archaic idea of coaching. And it comes from the male paradigm of coaching. I gave a talk yesterday and brought up Catherine Switzer and how we look at sport, especially modern sport, and a call comes from that male lens of how to train and what we need to do to train. But women don't need the volume. We're already inherently, by the fact of having uh, XX chromosomes and the way that our bodies are built, we're already really endurant. Our muscle fibers are endurance, so we don't need as much endurance training and volume as we do need intensity and strength. And it becomes really important as we get older, because when we lose those hormones and we default back to our actual chromosomal aspects and training history, we are so good at going long and slow, but not so good at maintaining strength and power.
0: This is going to lead into my next question, but can you sort of specify like what long means for the, I mean, are you talking, you know, you don't need to go to four hours and you, it's okay an hour and a half or like what, what does long mean?
1: So if I'm looking at someone who's training for a marathon and we typically see like one of the longest runs in a coaching program would be two and a half to three hours if for someone who wants to do a, between a four and five hour marathon, you don't have to go that long. Like we look at doing um, heavy resistance work and some speed work on top of that during the week. And then every 10 days doing a 90 minute tempo run. Maybe you stretch it out to two hours and that's it. But you don't have to do that three hour run. It can be a confidence thing, but it just breaks you down so much. Uh, and it takes longer to recover and repair when you're older, both men and women, but in particular during this menopausal transition state that it, it puts you back too far and your body, like I said, is already good at going long and slow. So you only need small doses for your body to be strong enough to finish that marathon.
0: I can imagine that this is going to be really hard for some athletes and I'm going to put myself into that category.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It does take some time to change. I I mean, I default to it, like coming from an Ironman background and bike racing. I always like when I'm really stressed with work, I just want to go ride my bike for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I'm like, right. That's, it's not like there's a time and a place for that soul food. Totally indulge that. Like if you love long runs, go for it, but don't make that the bread
0: and butter of your training. Right. I mean, I guess that that's the mind switch is just realizing why you're doing those long runs if you are doing them. hmm. Exactly. So sort of as a follow up to that, I'd really like to see, you know, hear what you say about how your training suggestions work in real life, because I heard on another podcast you talked about how lifting heavy really means relatively heavy mm-hmm. so that each athlete will be lifting heavy for them you know, not everybody's going to be doing an 85 pound deadlift. So yeah, talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So in our age group, we grew up like with Jane Fonda, Kate Moss, you know, all the super models, super skinny, no muscle tone, trying to do aerobics every day, like that focus on fat burning. And A lot of women have never really been in the gym, don't understand it. They think, you know, uh, bodybuilding and uh, Miss Olympia, and that's not what this is about. It's really, 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 really difficult to put bulk on, especially when you're peri and postmenopausal, because we just don't have the testosterone, estrogen, or for the most part, the chromosomal mapping to put on the bulk. So when we talk about resistance training and making it um, heavy and relative, we do a phase in where we learn to move properly. And this could be just learning how to squat properly without any weight, not even with the bar, feeling comfortable in those movements so we don't have any tightness or pain. And we start phasing weight in after we can move properly. And then we phase the weight in and what is heavy is heavy and proper movement. And then as you get stronger within that movement, you keep adding weight on. So building up to really heavy could be a year, but it's looking at what is heavy for you in good movement and good mechanics at that time. And when we look at it in real life, it's more of a time-saving because when we talk about lifting heavy and proper movement, you could be in and out of the gym in 30 minutes. If you are like i'm just doing posterior chain i'm going to do a set of deadlifts and and um single leg reverse lunges then you're looking posterior chain and that could be 30 minutes and then maybe adding some sprints on the treadmill after that to really take that work you've done in the weight room into your running mechanics and when we're looking at how busy most of us are at this point in our lives, looking at ways that we can time save as well as improve our fitness for a marathon is a win-win. So it's just trying to get people to understand that lifting heavy is relative. And what I mean by lifting heavy is what weight can you lift to get a stress in good movement?
0: And I'm assuming that that's what you just laid out is true for all levels of athletes, not just pro or elite and experienced, everyday people too. everyday people
1: you know I say you're an athlete if you exercise on purpose
0: I love it oh my gosh I love it yeah
1: and that's how we work like in the Dr. Stacey Sims realm everyone in here is all like yep okay I'm an athlete because I exercise on purpose and it's really cool to see people when they embrace that how empowered they are and how much they step out of their comfort zone because they're like I am an athlete I'm gonna try that I'm an athlete i'm going to push myself a little bit more and i think i've always maintained that because i don't like it when people or especially women degrade themselves no i just run i'm not an athlete i'm like yes you are you run four days a week for a reason then you're an athlete and they're like oh okay or people go to um pump classes i'm not an athlete i'm like yes you are you're putting yourself in there you're pushing yourself you're sweating on purpose for a reason and then it's that mindset
0: so yes you are an athlete when I first started this podcast, which was five years ago, about now, so many of the athletes that I interviewed, and none of them were slouches, said that they were not athletes, and it was really <laughs> troubling for me.
1: Yeah, I know. It's frustrating because they look at it as their job, and a lot of them end up being humble, but it's like, no, you're an athlete, and your job is to push yourself. And then there's so many of us who are have other jobs that still push ourselves, and we identify not necessarily as an athlete, but you are. Like you push your body and you're doing things on purpose, then you are an athlete.
0: And those principles that you laid out about lifting relatively heavy for yourself, I'm assuming also apply to the high intensity work that you recommend as well. Yes. So it's intense for yourself.
1: Yes, it is. The thing about it though, is learning what intense is. Uh, because we often get thrown into what we perceive as being intense, um, like a, a boot camp class or a 30 minute run. And we end up in this moderate intensity zone where it's you know, maybe 70 to 80 percent of our max. And it's a gray zone where it's too hard to be easy and it's too easy to be hard. So we need to learn how to polarize. We need to learn that easy means a rating of perceived exertion of two to three on a scale of one to 10. And intense is that nine or 10 on that scale of one to 10. And we wanna stay away from that six, seven, eight zone because that's that moderate intensity zone. So understanding the polarization. And so when you go do your intensity, you're going full gas. You're going as hard as you can for that small, dose of of time and then you pull it way way back and really really recover so if you're walking during your recovery during your running intervals that's sweet because you want your heart rate to drop you want to really recover as much as you can so that you can hit it as hard as you can for the next intensity interval and if that means that when you first start out you can only do two two high-end intervals that's sweet that's good Because those small doses of high, high intensity do so much more for your body from a cardiovascular standpoint, a metabolic standpoint, than trying to slog out 30 minutes of of moderate intensity work. How do you
0: teach going full gas?
1: Yeah, that's the thing. It's really, (laughs) really looking, you can use a heart rate or you can understand rating of perceived exertion where you're like okay i'm going to go so slow it's embarrassing and then i'm going to go as hard as i can where i feel like i'm going to puke (laughs) and that's how you understand the polarization i think most of it's easier if you're using a heart rate monitor if you're if you're in tune to your heart rate and knowing that usually you set about 160 for your your intervals and let's try to push it up to 170 and then our recovery interval, instead of sitting at 120, let's drop to 100. So you're trying to see how far up the top end you can push it and how far on the
0: bottom end you can bring it down. But I find that non-experienced athletes don't understand that you can really be in a lot of pain, but survive.
1: I know, and that's a learned effect too, that pain tolerance and learned effect. I'm trying to teach that to my nine-year-old daughter, where she's like, oh, my legs hurt. I'm like, no, they don't. They're just tired. Let's push a little bit harder. And she'll push a little bit harder. And she's like, I did it. My legs don't hurt. I'm like, okay, now let's push a little bit harder. <laughs> like, trying to get her to understand that she can can be uncomfortable and it's okay.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. So here's a personal question. And I've asked other people and have not gotten really much of an answer. So I'm, I'm. this is a test. <laughs> okay. I am convinced... Uh, that I still cycle and I'm in menopause or Mm perimenopause but I still think I am cycling in some way so I was wondering if you had any experience with that have read any research or done any yourself.
1: When we're in perimenopause we can have times where we don't bleed but we still are cycling. Uh, We'll have episodes of elevated estrogen and progesterone. It's not ovarian driven so much as it is from the adrenals and and we still do produce estrone, which is a really weak estrogen, and that can be converted to estradiol. So yeah, effectively, you can be still cycling, but it's not necessarily ovarian driven. It's through other mechanisms where you have perturbations of estrogen going up and down. And it gives you symptoms as if you were um, pre-min- or yeah, having PMS or you're feeling like you're ovulating.
0: Right. So what should I be tracking to find out more about that? So
1: you can, you can initially get some blood tests to see what your baseline estrogen, your E2 is and what your, your progesterone is. And then when you get those baseline levels, you can look at heart rate variability. So if you're using like a whoop or an aura or even a Garmin that uploads and understands heart rate variability, we know that when there's elevation in progesterone, then you have a, a, a. A decrease in your heart rate variability. So, if mm-hmm. you look at patternings across time frames, then you can actually pick out times of elevated estrogen and elevated progesterone.
0: And what about temp- morning temperature?
1: Yeah, morning temperature, basal body temperature, there's an uptick by about one degree Fahrenheit when progesterone comes up. So, you can do that over a period of, I usually say, six to eight weeks. So, you can
0: see any kind of patterning that's going on there as well. Sure. Interesting. Well, so I want to end with a question sort of about where you see your work and your research, where it fits in sort of a bigger picture. So you've done so much work. It's been so influential for women athletes, for coaches and researchers. You know, I mean, the book Roar changed the field of nutrition, coaching and training. So. I'm just curious how you see yourself fitting into this bigger picture of learning more about female athletes. I'm always learning, so I always want to disseminate it out.
1: You know what? I don't really know the answer to that because I feel a little bit removed and I don't really know how I fit in at the moment. But my driving force behind everything I do is I don't want my daughter and her friends to grow up in the sporting environment that I grew up in where women are not empowered and girls are always worried about how they look and how much they weigh and are they appropriate for a certain sport. And as I get older, I also don't want to see that happening to my friends. So I guess everything's kind of driven from a a personal angle. But I also realize that the more women are empowered and the more that we can keep pushing and changing the dogma within the coaching environment into the you know the gyms and and beyond then the more empowerment we have for women of all ages so I guess I'll just keep being selfish and pushing for my kid and my friends and and
0: see how that that lands in a few years when I think about this and when I spoke to Sam Moore who was on the podcast Mm -hmm. one of the things that really stood out to me in her story but also I don't know in women that I've spoken to who are around my age or a little bit younger, is this sense of loss. You know, like if I had only known, and Sam, I mentioned Sam Moore, because she said that she's gotten a lot of emails from women who had that that same sense of loss, like just feeling so frustrated that things had been as they were for so long, you know, mm-hmm. based on this male paradigm.
1: Yeah, yep, I get that too. I have a lot of people like, my career would have been different if I knew then what I know now and there is that sense of uh, I, I didn't achieve what I, I could have achieved and it's very frustrating and, and anger and there is that sense of loss. and. There's no way to go back and change things, which is unfortunate. And the only thing that we can think about now is how can we improve what we're doing and move forward and make it better for people who are coming up behind us and being those role models and really trying to empower ourselves now to say, you know, moving forward, I'm not going to look back with regrets. I'm going to change up my training now and I'm going to go win that splash and dash or I'm going to go, you know, PR in my marathon time. And then when people ask what I'm doing, then I can tell them. Or even if they don't ask, I can still say, these are the things that I've done that's broken free from that, that traditional mindset that's allowing me to progress how I never thought I could.
0: Well, great. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited about your new book. Oh, thanks. So I look forward to it.
1: Thanks so much. This has been fun. I appreciate yeah. the the time and the chat.
0: Well, back at you. And that's a wrap for this week's show. A really enormous heartfelt thank you to former teammate and friend Lisa Hunt for introducing me to Stacey. It's always fun to have such terrific women on the show and offer you an opportunity to learn from them and take those things into your own training. There are other ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. And if you aren't a newsletter subscriber, check it out. Between episodes, I write a few words about issues in sports, the podcast, and how to watch women's sports or follow along in other ways. Sign up at hearhersports.com. Until next time, bye-bye. Women's Running Stories, where we explore
1: the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.